Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. As we are in the midst of a heated presidential campaign, we know that much coverage goes to the people around the candidates. If elected president, we want to know who will be the advisors, who gets to whisper in the ear of the president, and who might have the last word before important decisions are made. During the presidency of FDR, one of the most influential of those closest to the president was Missy Lahand, a little-known and little-understood figure who functioned as FDR's de facto chief of staff. While Eleanor Roosevelt was often referred to as the president's legs, Lahand was his right hand. Giving us the first full-scale biography of this important historical figure is my guest, Catherine Smith. Catherine Smith is a journalist and writer with a lifelong interest in FDR. She's the author of the oral history of World War II told by veterans and civilians called A Necessary War. And it is my pleasure to welcome Catherine Smith here to talk about The Gatekeeper, Missy Lehand, FDR, and the untold story of the partnership that defined a presidency. Catherine Smith, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, and delighted to be here. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about how Missy Lahan came to uh, Franklin Roosevelt. How did uh, that begin? Well, he many people don't remember or, or never knew that he ran for vice president in 1920. He was the running mate of a man named James M. Cox. And Missy was hired as the staff secretary for his campaign headquarters in New York City. After the election was over, they were, they were trounced by Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt asked Missy to come up to the president's family home in Hyde Park and help clean up the correspondence, and she and FDR got along so well that he invited her to work for him as his private secretary on Wall Street, where he was going to make some money. And that relationship continued into the campaign when he finally ran for president. Yeah, it continued for 21 years. She worked in the White House until 1941 when she had a, a serious stroke and had to retire. And talk a little bit about the nature of the relationship. Why did it work so well? I think they just they just jihad, as we say here in the <laughs> South. They had a similar sense of humor, um, just kind of silly, like wordplay and um, that sort of thing. Um, I think that they also had an understanding after he was stricken with polio because Missy had um, rheumatic fever as a child and had spent a couple of years in bed and understood what it was like to be flat on your back. So there was that intrinsic understanding, but they just they just jihad. And what was her relationship with Eleanor like? It was very, very close and affectionate. Um, Eleanor was was not old enough to be Missy's mother, either was Franklin. I think there was about a 13-year age gap, but she treated her in sort of a motherly way. And whenever Missy had problems with her health or, or family or whatever, Eleanor would just step right in. When Missy's mother died unexpectedly during the 1932 campaign, Eleanor just dropped everything and went home with her, helped make funeral arrangements and that kind of thing. So the letters between the two are very affectionate. And um, Eleanor owed Missy a lot because she would back her up so she could go off and do her traveling and speaking and all the things she did at First Lady, as First Lady, that make her so memorable today. Missy would back her up at the White House as hostess and just fill in the gaps. And was there ever any jealousy that Eleanor had towards Missy Lahand? I never saw it as jealousy. Sometimes Eleanor, in a letter to a close friend like uh, Lorena Hickok, would just shoot a little barb Missy's way. She thought she wasn't critical enough of 
Franklin, and of course Eleanor was plenty critical enough for Franklin. <laughs> so um, th- that's the, the most I ever saw of it, but not a jealousy thing at all. And many people thought that there was some kind of romantic relationship between FDR and Missy LeHand, which which you argue was definitely not true. I don't think it was true. Um, and, and most of that can be dated to the 1970s when Elliot Roosevelt, which is the sort of the black sheep of the, Roosevelt's five children, wrote a book in which he suggested that he had seen Missy sitting on his father's lap in a nightgown on the La Rocco, that was his houseboat, and assumed they had a, as he put it, a familial relationship. Now, whatever that means, people took that to mean an affair. But the other Roosevelt children disavowed the book, and in fact, James, the oldest son who knew Missy very well and worked with her in the White House, said it wasn't true at all, that Missy's true value to her father was as a political advisor. Um, I read, since I've written The Gatekeeper, I read a really interesting interview with Curtis Roosevelt, who was one of the the grandchildren who lived in the White House when Missy was there. He was known as uh, Buzzy when he was a little boy. Um, he said what Elliot doesn't mention in his book was that this was a, a 90-foot houseboat that had 11 people on board at the time. <laughs> so there wasn't a whole lot of privacy on the LaRocco. But that kind of stuck, and um, it's been carried on in movies like that um, dreadful Hyde Park on Hudson movie, <laughs> and people tend to believe the fiction rather than the fact. And talk about her role in the White House and the influence that she had. I mean, you talk about her as, as really functioning as a de facto chief of staff long before right. there was an actual chief of staff in the White House. Right, right. FDR liked to have his hands on everything, so he had sort of a flat organizational chart. But the ultimate job title in the White House was secretary, and he came into office with four secretaries. Louis Howe, who was a legendary figure as his political advisor, Steve Early, who was his press secretary, Marvin McIntyre, who handled appointments, and Missy, who did everything else. And she had the only office adjoining FDR, sat right outside the Oval Office, you know, knew everybody who went in, and all the phone calls, and, all, and she handled his mail. Um, and as Louis Howe was in terrible health, and as his health waned, um, he died in '36. Missy assumed more and more of his duties, so she really was the functional chief of staff. Um, but nobody used that title until Eisenhower, mm-hmm. because it was more of a military term, and that's what he was a military man. And talk a little bit about how she was perceived by the other advisors, by people like Louis Howe, and as you say, Steve mm-hmm. Early, and Harry Hopkins, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, she got along really well with, with the advisors. Now, Louie was jealous of anybody who was closer to FDR than he was. So he had a natural jealousy of Missy and just about anyone else. Um, but as I said, Louis' health waned. He was in an oxygen tent in the White House by 1935, and by 1936 he had been moved out to a, a hospital where he just kind of made phone calls and caused problems for everyone else. But she and Steve and uh, Mac, as Marvin was known, got along great. Um, she and, and uh, Harry Hopkins adored each other. Um, Harry was a, a really uh, influential and important person. He he was a, a generalist, as, as it's been called. He could do just about anything. So he did things from setting up the federal relief program in 1933 to running Lynn Lease during World War II. 
And he came to the White House one night in 1940, I think, and, and felt so bad. He had all kinds of health problems that FDR suggested he spent the night, and he stayed for three and a half years. So <laughs> he and Missy got to, be, got to be even closer then. But she, um, I think she was smart. It was, it was kind of like what Hillary Clinton was saying recently about when she was in law school and was being you know, harassed by male law students. She just kind of kept her head down and did her work. And she would always deny that she ever talked to the president about politics or anything. Oh, no, I'm just a secretary. So it wasn't true, but that's what she said. And that's how she kind of kept off the radar screen. And how much political influence did she have? And what was the nature and the kind of advice that she gave to the president? Mm -hmm. I think that her major influence was in bringing in people who were useful to Roosevelt. You know, the the New Deal was full of policy wonks, and everyone who had an idea about saving the economy came to Washington and came to work for the New Deal. They were called New Dealers around town. And you, you need you need facilitators when you're in a room of, of, of policy wonks, and Missy was really good at that. One of the most important people she brought into the inner circle was a man named Tommy Corcoran, he was a protege of the uh, celebrated Harvard Law professor Felix Frankfurter, and uh, Missy adored Felix Frankfurter. Well, a lot of Frankfurter's protégés came to Washington, and they were known around town as the Happy Hot Dogs. And, and Tommy was one of these. And Frank Frankfurter wrote a note to Missy, said, "I want to introduce you to my good friend Tommy um, Corcoran, who I think can do a lot of good for the president." So to get him in the back door, Missy invited him to come and, and play the accordion after dinner one night. And FDR just loved musical nights like that because he liked to sing. So Tommy started showing up in Missy's office every morning, and he would tell her what the scuttlebutt was in the Capitol or what he'd heard at a cocktail party. And she would go into FDR's office and say, FD, which is what she called him, Tommy's out here, and he says, yada, yada, yada. And FDR would say, oh, I want to talk to Tommy. Send him in. So Tommy became the um, the White House lobbyist. There'd never been one before. Um, he and his housemate, Ben Cohen, who was another happy hot dog, drafted a lot of the New Deal legislation, and Tommy would, would push it through. So he was a really useful guy to have around. Mm -hmm. And he got there because of Missy. How large was the the White House staff at that point. Talk a little bit about it in, in, well, in sort of then yeah. versus now. Yeah, and I don't know how how many they have now. In the beginning, of course, it was just a skeleton staff. It was those secretaries and a few others, um, Grace Tully, who was Missy's assistant. But they had to bring in a lot more people really quickly. Um, Herbert Hoover had been used to getting about 5,000 letters a week. FDR got 50,000 letters a week. Every letter was answered by someone who typed it on a typewriter. So they had to just bring in a huge number of clerks to handle just the mail. Um, and then uh, they added to the staff, sometimes it, were, it was people who worked for the Agriculture Department or the Treasury Department, but they were actually housed in the White House. They were kind of attached to the White House. And by 1934, they had had to add a, a new floor to the West Wing and excavate the basement to add enough office space for all the people who would come in. So it was it was quite a big difference. And, of course, the New Deal was just a, a burgeoning of, of federal programs to try to get the, the country back on track. 
Talk a little bit about publicity and the degree to which Missy Lahan got any and, and, and how she saw her so hard as far as she was concerned. Yeah. Um, she didn't seek it. She was. Uh, it was famously said that she would give anyone an interview, and then the reporter would go away realizing that she hadn't said anything. And as a former newspaper reporter, I sure know that feeling because sometimes I'd have an interview with somebody who was just charming and would just talk and talk and talk, and then I'd get to my my computer and thought, "What? What did he say?" <laughs> so, but she did get a lot of of really good publicity. She was featured in a big spread in the Saturday Evening Post in nineteen. 19- 38 called um, Missy to do this, FDR, and it was uh, just talked about her role with the Roosevelt's and the family and how much she knew and how much she kept to herself. Um, Look Magazine gave her a four-page photo spread called Missy Call, uh, Look Calls on Missy Lahan that just showed her in, all over the White House and in her little private suite. Um, she lived in the White House on the third floor. She um, was, I'm trying to think, oh, yeah, she was named as one of the best-dressed women in Washington one year. Um, so she was she was known all over the country. She appeared in lots of news articles. But, again, she always tried to say, oh, you know, I'm, I, I don't really know what's going on. I'm just a secretary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> were there specific areas that you were able to ascertain that she really made a, either a political or policy contribution? Um. I don't think that policy was her big area other than that she she was FDR's conscience, and that was the term he used himself. Um, she was the one who reminded him about the common man, the little people, because she was from a blue-collar family in a blue-collar neighborhood of Boston, that it, and her family had really struggled for everything they had. So she remembered the, the plebes, as they said. I also think that she urged him on the interventionist side getting into World War II, uh, she was involved with the American ambassador to France, so she had a, a you know, really good feeling as to what was going on there. And FDR had a very ineffectual um, Secretary of War, and she was always after him to fire him and get someone in who was worthwhile. Um, early on, though, uh, talking about appointments, the well, really big one was before FDR even took office. He was elected in November 32. He didn't take office until March of 1933. And in between, there was an assassination attempt on his life. The unemployment rate rose to 25%, and the banking system was about to go over the edge. He had appointed a, a senator from Montana as his attorney general nominee, and he was depending on him to weigh in on a sort of an obscure World War I-era law that would allow them to close the banking system for a, a week to get things sorted out and to uh, make make hoarding gold and cash illegal. And this um, man that he was depending on to give, render his opinion died of a heart attack on the way to the inauguration. And the kind of the spicy bit about this was this man was 73, and he had been married less than a week before to a much younger Cuban woman, <laughs> and he died on the train. <laughs> so presumption beyond his powers, perhaps. But um, no one could think of a, of a replacement, and Missy recommended Homer Cummings, who was a well-known Democratic attorney, and he took the job and rendered the opinion. So that's what I think, that she was really good at, at helping plug in people who were useful rather than coming up with policy ideas. Did she have much of a personal life outside of the White House? 
She did, and, and I'm so glad you asked that, Jeff. That's one of the big things that I've discovered in my research. So often she's been portrayed as kind of this, this little drudge who just, you know, sat home with FDR every night, but she did have a personal life. She loved to dance. She loved to go to theaters and plays. In New York, she would go for a, for five days and see a play every night, and she had a, a suitor. Um, his name was William Christian Bullitt. He was a very wealthy um, sophisticated man from Philadelphia who was FDR's ambassador to Russia and later to Paris. And they met in 1932 when he first came to visit the the man who was likely to become president and had a relationship that lasted until 1940. Um, it was a mostly long-distance relationship, which I think suited Missy just fine. But whenever he came home for, you know, long leaves of absence from his post, he'd you know, take her out and take her dancing and take her to dinner and, you know, buy her jewelry and flowers. And they had a, a pretty intense um, correspondence. But when the uh, Nazis took over Paris in 1940, Bullet came home. And very soon after that, Missy broke off the relationship. And I think partly he was just demanding too much of her time. And I think he was really getting pushy about, I need another assignment. Can you get FDR to get me a, you know, a plum job? So she'd had it. And talk a little bit about when FDR became more ill towards the end of his presidency. Mm-hmm. That was another thing that, that was surprising to me was, was how poor his health was. Um, he was, in 1940, he was having dinner with, with Missy and, and Bill Bullitt, who was home on leave, at the at um, either I think it's Hyde Park and he just fainted at the dinner table, and his the White House physician said he'd had a very slight heart attack. Now this was covered up; it was never talked about for decades. And you know, years later, it came out the the family was astonished to learn in 1944 that he had congestive heart failure. But I think FDR's health was was very poor um, long before that. There's a a good case to be made that he had. Um, melanoma, the dark spot over his left eye, and that that was a metastatic condition. But I think what I, I believe that, that Missy knew his health was poor as early as 1940 because she was opposed to him running for a third term. And when he finally accepted the nomination um, uh, over the phone from the Democratic Convention, she was the only one in the room who was crying. And I think that was that was why. Mm-hmm. She should have been worried about her own health because he survived her third term and um, she had a stroke within six months. Tell us a little bit about why you think more has not been written about her previously. Well, it was hard tracking down her papers. And because of sort of the helter-skelter way she left the White House in the middle of a, a medical catastrophe and, you know, really didn't get to clean out her own desk, clean out her own file cabinet, it was done for her by others. And some of the papers were spirited away. Some of them may have been destroyed. Um, a lot of them wound up with her family, and not everyone has had access to those. Some of the papers made it to the FDR library in 2010, but um, I think that's a lot of the reason. And then, you know, then then Elliot Roosevelt marginalized her as a mistress, and, you know, oh, well, maybe she was FDR's girlfriend. So I think that that a lot of that was had to do with it. But people who are, are really good scholars of FDR, like um, Frank Castigliola at the University of Connecticut, recognized her as, as a valuable staff member and a crucial staff member. 
and her contemporaries did also. Um, things were said, such as when she had her stroke, it was the biggest blow since the president's inauguration, that it was like losing a, a battle in World War II to have Missy out of the White House. So um, fortunately, I was able to use the resources of the FDR library and the Warm Springs um, archives but also I was able to get connected with her family, and they were very eager for their great-aunt's story to be told and were very generous in sharing her papers. So I spent quite a few days going through them, and it was a real revelation. Catherine Smith, the book is The Gatekeeper, Missy Lehand, FDR, and the untold story of the partnership that defined a presidency. Catherine, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you.